Hello and welcome to episode 83 of the Replacement Level Podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Thrilled to be joined right now by Andrew Baggerly. Andrew is the Giants beat reporter for The Athletic. He's also the author of Giant Splash and A Band of Misfits. You can give him a follow on Twitter at Extra Bags. Andrew, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, Ross. It's great to be on with you again. Well, let's start with your new gig. You're now with The Athletic. Tell me about this opportunity for you. Yeah, so, you know, I've covered the Giants since 2004, covered Major League Baseball since 1998, and this is uh, probably the first time I'm not going to have to write a running game story that I file at the final out, which uh, some years when you cover a bullpen that's not so reliable, it, it, it's a bit like wrestling a bear to to uh, deal with late lead changes and re- rewriting and hitting the delete key, and, and uh, I, I really am looking forward to watching the game and, and not have my head buried in my in my laptop screen uh, in the late innings and some of the most important stuff is happening and and uh, and being able to really be kind of a little more of a keen observer of what's happening on the field so you can ask you know more insightful questions in the clubhouse and and uh, and, and really have kind of a free form to tell you the most important story of the day and and maybe it's going to be something that's very very you know granular within a game and maybe it's going to be something that's not related to the game at all but um you know, I, I sort of get the freedom to, to pick and choose and, and go where I want to go and not necessarily have to follow the pack. And, and, um, and, and then hopefully, uh, you know, there's more people covering the Giants. Uh, the beat expands by one, and, and there's more choices for, for Giants fans to get information too. So um, it, it, I think it's going to be great. It's going to be great for, for uh, baseball fans in the Bay Area, and, uh, and we're expanding too. We're hiring some, some really, really talented people that you're going to hear about soon in other markets covering baseball. A lot of the people that I would I would hire if I were starting a staff from scratch, and so um, you know it's it's really exciting to see that uh, these are their values because they're so in line with mine, and and uh, and hopefully uh, readers and subscribers find a lot of value in it too. The Giants perhaps underperformed their expectations more than any other team last year. What went wrong for them last year? Yeah, well, first of all, thanks for mentioning my books. I think you in the ancient history section of your local public library <laughs> after 98 losses last year that seems so long ago that when they won the world series uh three times between 2010 and 2014 but uh it, it really is amazing i mean if you look at all the projection systems they had the giants winning you know 84 85 88 games and and obviously they you know the tigers had to monumentally tank just for the giants not to finish all by themselves with the last re- uh, worst record in the major leagues at 64 and 98 and i think that you know there were definitely some cracks in the uh, you know we saw it after the all-star break in 2016 when they finished uh, 30 and 42 after the all-star break and, and were able to slip in as the wild card. And then of course, Bumgarner did his usual thing against the Mets. And then they, they came within really very close to, to upsetting the Cubs before the, the Cubs went on to winning at all. And that kind of masked just how bad they were in the second half. It was easier to forget about that. But then when you, you add on 30 and 42 after the break in 2016 to what happened last year, I think that it was really easy for this group, even though they've got a lot of champions, a lot of accomplished people to kind of lose their mojo and lose their edge. And then, you know, the one guy you could really count on to put up a fight on his day to pitch Madison Bumgarner, all of a sudden falls off his dirt bike on April 20th and separates his shoulder. And and he's gone for three months. And I really think that that was, you know, it was going to be hard for them to, to rally and, and have a productive season after they got off to such a bad start. But I mean, for that to happen to that guy, uh, you know, who's maybe the one guy who would be the least tolerant of, of a slow descent into into hell, 
Um, I, I just think that that was the season was lost right there. So, um, but the good thing is he, he came back at the end of the year and, and he resembled uh, pretty much his, his former self. And, you know, now you can put your projection systems back into play. And, and, and it's amazing that a lot of the systems uh, show that the Giants are, are back to, you know, being an 80 plus, you know, somewhere mid 80s win team. Uh, you know, and now you add in Longoria and McCutcheon and, and they really feel like they're going to be contenders. And, um, you know, there, there are a lot of reasons to be skeptical. Uh, there are a lot of red flags, but, uh, the, you also look at, at, you know, they're a team that's trying to win and there are too many teams in baseball that I think uh, the way I put it on Twitter the other day that are too eager to punt on third and long, you know, I mean, the giants were a fourth place team at the all-star break in 2010. They had no idea that they were going to be the first team in San Francisco history in over 52 years to win a world series. I mean, if, if you don't try, you, you got no shot. And, uh, so I think it, you know they should be commended for going for it and for trying to wash that 98 loss uh, taste out of the mouths of their fans and their players and uh, you know you, they still have Bumgarner and if they can get into October you know he's a guy who creates his own championship window we've seen him do it so uh, I, I think that these two trades for McCutcheon and Longoria give them uh, a lot of excitement and, and a lot of reason for uh, optimism that it's going to be different it's going to be a different year. Well, let's start with the McCutcheon trade here that just happened a few days ago. What do the Giants think they're getting in McCutcheon at this point? Well, they're getting one year. And, um, you know, I think that if, if this is a guy who had uh, Longoria's contract attached to him where you're going to be paying him, you know, through his age 36 season in 2022, uh, I, I don't think they necessarily do a, a, another of those deals. But you're looking at, you know, one year, they see a guy who, you know, is still a productive player. Uh, he's right-handed, which they needed right-handed production. They've got two guys who, you know, reliably hit at least 20 homers every year. Uh, you can probably, you know, park adjust his numbers to AT&T Park, and it's not like he's going from Camden Yards or anything. He's going from PNC, which is the second toughest place to hit in the National League. So they, they're reasonably sure that he's going to be a successful player at AT&T, and they're not going to ask him to play center field. They're going to ask him to play right, uh, where, you know, they feel that, you know, he still can be an adequate Defender. Now they still get a premium defender in center, uh, and and that's what their current task is. But uh, you know they feel they're getting somebody who's got presence, and that's really what they haven't had. You know they've they've asked Buster Posey, who's a tremendous uh, player and uh, had a really underrated offensive season last year, but he hit two homers after the All Star break. You know, previous year he hit three homers after the All Star break. I mean he's not a cleanup presence, and they were asking him to be that, and now they don't have to ask him to be that. They've got a Longoria, they've got McCutcheon, and they, they hope that they'll have a healthy Brandon Belt, who, you know, uh, is, is you know, an elite on-base guy when he's healthy. And they still have a gold-glove shortstop in Brandon Crawford. And, uh, you know, and, and if they can get that outfield short up and maybe address the bullpen a little bit, uh, they get regular seasons from Bumgarner and Cueto, then uh, you can start to see it come together a little bit. What did the Giants give up in Kyle Crick? Well, I think they gave up somebody who's a live arm. He's never been a command guy. He's made some really, really big strides uh, last year. Obviously got to the big leagues. He can miss bats. Um, he also can wild and wild in the strike zone. If, if he ever becomes a plus command guy, um, you know, which is kind of hard to profile from him at this point, uh, he could really be a game changer uh, because he's a durable arm. Uh, he's a guy who can, you know, go multiple innings. Uh, really the kind of reliever that's, that's ultra valuable in today's game. And I'm sure they did not want to part with him. He's a guy that they've worked really hard, uh, you know, to go from a, a former supplemental first rounder who was 
looking like he could be the next Matt Cain to a guy who really lost his way and they persevered, they worked with them and they, you know, put a lot of, um, they invested a lot of effort and time in, into him. And, and, and now he's just about ready to, you know, be a major league asset and, you know, you, you have to give up something. And, and I think that, uh, uh, you know, the pirates got themselves, a an arm with a lot of ceiling and, and we'll have to see if he, if he can figure it out and be consistent and, and, uh, you know, finds a way to, um, you know, become a frontline reliever instead of just a back-end guy who's got a live arm. You mentioned Posey won't have to hit cleanup anymore. Where do you think they hit him this year? Do you think he goes into the two-hole now? Well, that's a great question. I think ideally they'd like a two-hitter who, you know, probably is, is a little more likely to go from first to third or score from second on a single. Um, I think three might be where they hit him. Um, but, you know, it's... They've always had such a problem, especially in the lower half of their lineup, trying to break up their left-handed bats with, with Crawford and Belt and, uh, and Panic. Um, it remains to be seen what they'll do at leadoff. I think that's going to dictate a lot of where the rest of the lineup goes. You could hit McCutcheon leadoff even. Uh, you could hit Belt leadoff. You know, a lot of teams are willing to go with the Kyle Schwarber type players now because they get on base, even though they're not prototypical sort of speed guys. And, and Belt definitely could be a a leadoff guy. Uh, so I think they've got to figure that out. But if I had to guess, uh, Posey probably will hit third. Uh, I don't think you'll see him hit lower than, than fourth, and he doesn't have to hit fourth anymore. So uh, second is a possibility, but third is probably where I would forecast him. Let's talk about the other big addition, the other big uh, trade that the Giants made this year. They got Evan Longoria from the, the Tampa Bay Rays. Longoria, of course, was their franchise third baseman. He's their all-time leader in, in several offensive categories. He's not the same player that he used to be. He is signed long-term. The Giants still see significant upside with him? I think they do. I think they see somebody who is durable. I mean, he's played more games than anybody else in the major leagues over the last five years. You know, there's no question that, that he's a regression candidate. I mean, he already has regressed. And I, I think that, you know, if you're, if you're looking for reasons to be skeptical or wince a little bit, you know, you, nobody, you, you, you scout everybody and you, you try to know everybody's players. You know your own players better than anybody else. And you know your superstars better than any of your other players. So if Longoria, if the Razor are saying, look, you know, we're going to trade the face of our franchise. And by the way, we're going to pay down some of his salary to, to move him, you know, and, and the Pirates are doing the same with a the McCutcheon. Then, yeah, I think that definitely is cause for some concern, for some alarm. Uh, that uh, their own teams that they they meant you know more to than anybody else saw them as as pretty steep regression candidates. But you know for the Giants end, they see a guy who won the Gold Glove last year. He'll be an asset on their infield defense, which is uh, fantastic. I mean they could have four Gold Glove winners on their infield next season. And uh, you know they see a guy who's got right-handed power that will play in their ballpark. And you know you can go back to, I mean I can't remember the last time they had a right-handed hitter uh, whose power played at AT&T Park. We saw flashes of Pat Burrell for a while, but you'd have to go back to almost Jeff Kent, really, to find a right-handed hitter who, who really could you know, pepper those bleachers. And, and they feel that, that Longoria will, will translate well there. And they think that he's a, a good character guy, a good leader, and, and they love his durability. And uh, so, you know, we'll see how he ages and if his contract becomes a giant anchor in a couple years. But not only could they get him they were able to get uh, the race to take Denard's fan and also pay down some of the contract. And that made the deal completely neutral for the competitive balance tax as it affects uh, 2018. Uh, so, uh, and moving forward, the numbers like 11 and a half million that, that Longoria will add toward 
the CBT. So they've added McCutcheon and Longoria, and they're still under. And, uh, you know, I, I think they should be willing to go over and, and, and stay in the penalties if they can get, you know, a, a difference-making center fielder or, or even a starting pitcher. But, uh, you know, they still have the option to stay under. And, and after adding those two guys, that's, I think that speaks well to what the front office has, has been able to accomplish. I'm on the opposite coast of the Giants. I don't have a stake in their success either way, but I do like what they did with both Longoria and McCutcheon. Frankly, I like that they're going for it, but I wonder if they felt that they almost had to, in a sense where a complete teardown for them wasn't as realistic as it was for the Cubs or for the Astros because they didn't have as many assets and they had too many aging players already on high-profile contracts or expensive contracts that would have been hard to move. So they felt like, look, we're an older team. Here are two players that we can get for relatively low cost. Let's go for it. We kind of have to anyway. Yeah, I think that's a good summation. I think they realized that, you know, blowing it up, it was going to be hard for them to, you know, if they if they truly were to blow it up, that would mean trading Bumgarner. And, uh, and I don't think they were ready to do that. But he's the one guy that could get a Chris Sale type haul of prospects that could really help them restart their system. And, you know, they've got him for 12 million for the next two years. And, and you know, as I mentioned a little while earlier, um, you know, you get him into October and, and it's like having a hot playoff goalie. I mean, you know, you really do have a chance to win every series because he can just take over a game the way he can. So, um, you know, I think they looked at it and they're like, you know, yeah, we, we believe in our core. Uh, these guys, you know, you can look at Hunter Pence and he's 35 and his hamstrings have really blown out. And, and it's hard to imagine that he's going to be the Hunter Pence we saw five years ago again. Uh, but everybody else is, you know, they're not 34, 35, 36. They're they're 30, 31. They still have some, you know, good years left in them. And and so the Giants are saying, look, we believe in our core players, and you know we're going to go ahead and get other core players that that other teams uh, maybe don't believe in anymore, and believe in them too. And uh, and and it, it's really staggering. You know, I was texting with a couple of of players, a Hunter Pence, a Joe Panic. And uh, Joe Panic sent me a text and he said, I don't think my excitement can come through the phone, but I'm so excited. I can't wait to get to spring training. And it's like you made these two trades and, and this team that's been, you know, kicked in, in while they're down and, and they you know, went through that 98 loss season. It felt like they played 190 games. It was so long and so demoralizing. You almost made that with a snap of your fingers evaporate. These guys are excited again. They're motivated again. They think that they're got, they've got a chance. Um, you know, they're pinching themselves that they got Longoria and McCutcheon and, you know, they still have talent. And when you add talent to motivation, uh, you know, I think you get the most out of, of that talent. So um, I think they needed to, to make these deals to help their fans believe again, but also to help their own players believe again. So, um, you know, that's that's sort of where they are and, and what they've achieved so far. And, and, and certainly they, they don't believe they're done. Before we move on to your Hall of Fame ballot, I want to ask you about the Brandons, Crawford, and Belt. Both players struggled last year. Both had big seasons in 2016. They're only two years away from being very productive and good players. What happened to them last year? Well, with Belt, uh, he had a concussion, um, and that obviously the season, and he had 18 homers, you know, with about uh, six or eight weeks to go in the season and and, uh, ended up leading the team, obviously, in homers because they hit the fewest in the majors. But uh, I think he was on his way toward toward having a decent year. He certainly went through some of his valleys, and he is a guy who gets very streaky. Um, but, uh, you know, everything apparently has been good. He's doing all his normal workouts. He's not having any symptoms. Um, the concussions are a concern because he's had several of them 
uh, and that one he was hitting the helmet by a curveball, so no one really thought at the time it was it was a big deal. Uh, but you know, I think he, he's going to have, have to be very careful and they're going to have to watch him. And it is a concern because it's been a, a, a recurring type of situation, but as long as he can stay healthy, I think the Giants still believe that this is a guy who can be one of the better first basemen in the league. And, you know, his salary goes up from, he was making about four and a half million last year. And now he's entering the first year of his extension and he's making 16. So, um, you know, there is going to be a little more more pressure on him to, to live up to that contract and be the player that everyone thinks he can be. Uh, in terms of Crawford, you know, he had another very solid season defensively. He won the gold glove. Um, offensively, I think, you know, he was trying to do too much uh, because the lineup was really struggling. And he's a guy who had won the silver slugger the year before. And, and I think that, you know, he was maybe trying to get out of his zone. And he really, really struggled against sliders and against curveballs. You know, I think at one point uh, in September, I looked up and he had like six hits on curveballs all year. So, um, you know, that's where he's getting too eager and he's not staying in his zone. He's chasing. And then the book got out on him, so more junk, and, and it sort of snowballed onto itself. And he also went through a lot of personal stuff, which I know he would never use as an excuse, but there was really a lot of heartache in that family with uh, his sister-in-law dying suddenly of an asthma attack, a, a mother of some of young children, um, you know, and, and what his other sister-in-law went through uh, with the U S gymnastics uh, uh, stuff. So, uh, you know, I think that there were just a lot of distractions and that's natural. I mean, you know, and everybody goes through a tough year in life and, you know, when it affects their job, it, it doesn't make them any less professional, just makes them human. And, and maybe some of that was going on, maybe not, but, uh, you know, hopefully a, a better year and, uh, you know, with, with fewer off the field distractions and, you know, will will lead to uh, more, a more productive season. Let's switch focus to the Hall of Fame. I'm curious, before we get into your ballot itself, if Joe Morgan's letter that he sent out, I don't know when that was, I guess after Thanksgiving, he sent it out to all the voters. I'm curious if that influenced your voting at all. No, it, it didn't influence my voting. Um, you know, I, I I sort of, I looked at it with a, a bit of a jaundiced eye. I, I thought it was, it was pretty lily-livered, to be honest, that the Hall of Fame does not want to provide us any voting instructions uh, which, which a lot of members have asked for some guidance and, and they've said, no, we trust you to make your own decisions. And then in this sort of passive aggressive way, they, they put this out, you know, on their letterhead where, you know, basically, Hey, here's something for you to consider from Joe Morgan. He's, he's not speaking for us. He's, he's speaking for, for Joe Morgan. And I, I just thought that was, that was a bit, there was a little bit of cowardice involved in that, to be honest. Um, and I have a lot of issues with Hall of Fame voting, a lot, because for me, I want the process to be as fair as possible. And that means a binary ballot. That means no rule of 10. That I mean, if you think 11 people are Hall of Famers and you can only check 10, that means that that 11th guy that you think should be in, you're actually driving down their percentage. I mean, it's not you're making a vote on every single person who's on the ballot by saying yes or no, you're affecting their percentage. So uh, it, it's fundamentally unfair the way it's set up right now that you can only vote for 10. And it definitely affects, you know, people's ability to organically build momentum as, as candidates, which we've seen throughout the years. But the Hall of Fame is not interested in a fair outcome. They're interested in steering the outcome. They're interested in the outcome they want. And that's the outcome that their Hall of Famers want or the vocal ones, because if all of a sudden the Joe Morgans of the world don't show up 
you know, for the induction ceremony at the end of July, you know, that, that that's going to be calamity for them. That, that's the last thing they want to have happen. So that's where we are um, as voters. And I think we just have to navigate it uh, as, as best we can. And it, it, it sucks. It sucks that people are having to use gamesmanship to figure out who to check and who not to check. And, and I went through that exercise myself. I almost didn't vote for Greg Maddox a few years ago because I saw 10 people I wanted to vote for. Uh, and, and I thought, well, I'll leave Maddox off because he's going to sail in anyway. And then I'm like, wait a second, I can't look back a decade, two decades from now and, you know, maybe walk in the hall of fame, look at Greg Maddox's plaque and say, I didn't vote for him. I mean, I ultimately had to be intellectually honest with myself and, and, vote for the people I thought were the Hall of Famers. And, uh, and, and so that's why we go through this process and, and it's agonizing in a lot of ways. And, and I think that we appreciate being, a, being able to be a part of it, but at the same time, we recognize that there are a lot of flaws in the process. And, and I hope maybe someday we can work to address some of them. Your ballot this year was a ballot of seven, Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, Chipper Jones, Jim Tomey, Edgar Martinez, Vladimir Guerrero, and Omar Vizquel. Tell me why you're a yes on Vizquel. Yeah, so I guess that's kind of funny, right? We, I just gave an impassioned plea to let's vote for more than 10, and I voted for seven. But, <laughs> but uh, I, I'm a small hall guy. I, I came to that realization, I think, uh, a year or two ago uh, when I was going through the exercise of how am I going to fit 12 people on that I would vote for onto a 10-person ballot. And I went through and I checked the names that were obvious for me, uh, Bonds and Clemens. Um, you know, at the time, it would have been a, a Bagwell and the other, some of the other people that were on the ballot at the time. Um, Piazza, uh, Tim Raines, I think at the time. And then I just came it down, putting it down. And then I realized, wait a second, you know, uh, I, I've already checked six names that, that for me are, are in that I know have to be on my ballot. Maybe I've drawn a line for myself by, by not knowing, you know, which of these last four out of these six or seven to put on. Maybe, maybe I've, I've delineated sort of where that line is. Um, so I, I decided, you know what, it's, I, I was really happy that Jack Morris got in uh, with, with the Veterans Committee. I was really happy that Alan Trammell got in. I, I didn't vote for them. And I think that some of the people I don't vote for that maybe don't get in, I'll be happy when, when they you know, maybe make it by the Veterans Committee in the future. But, you know, for me, I think that uh, I, you have to be a little more of a slam dunk. And uh, so that's why, um, you know, I really thought hard about Scott Rowland and, and he did not miss by much for me, but uh, I didn't check his name. Uh, same with an Andrew Jones. I, I hope those guys can stay on the ballot consideration. I think they will. Um, but, you know, for me, it's, it's, it's the no doubters. And uh, the, the names I checked are, are no doubters. And I know I'm going to get heat for Omar Vizquel, but I think that if you watched him play and I covered him with the Giants, and I, for me, you're not going to convince me that a guy's a Hall of Famer or not a Hall of Famer with a purely empirical, empirical argument, because for me, it's not an empirical exercise. It's, it's, it's fame. It's, it's, uh, it's what you've achieved in your career. It's how much you resonated with, with fans. And, and, um, you know, for me watching Omar Vizquel, he was a hall of famer. He played more games at shortstop than anybody else, you know, with the exception of Pete Rose, I believe every other all-time leader at games played of their position is in, um, you know, and, you know, he made his debut on the same day as Ken Griffey Jr. Opening day, 1989. And he retired with more hits. Now, you know, obviously that that's a counting stat, but, I, I, this is a guy who was going to hit, you know, 220 if he was lucky in the big leagues. He was learning how to switch hit in the minors and, and really didn't have an idea how to do it. And he made himself into somebody, you know, who could be in a major league lineup and and uh, and lasted longer at, you know, the most demanding position on the field longer than anybody else did, and played the game with with a lot of flair and a lot of um, a lot of energy and joy. 
And, uh, and to me that I think that's really valuable and no, you can't, it doesn't show up in, in, you know, what his war is, uh, or, or what his jaws score is, but you know, that matters. I think it matters to me. I think it matters to other voters as well. And if it doesn't matter to 75%, then he won't get in, but, uh, but I'll support him and continue to support him. And, and uh, I'm glad to see that he's at least getting enough to support to very easily stay on the ballot and, and get future consideration. Tell me why you're a no on Schilling and Musina. You know, it, it just, it was hard for me to, to, uh, they're very close and I considered them every year. And when I went through that exercise a couple of years ago where I was trying to wedge, you know, six guys into four slots, they were two of the guys for sure. Um, for me, Schilling is very analogous to like a Mickey Lolich, uh, somebody who was incredible in the postseason. you know, the world series MVP. Um, I think that his overall numbers fall short. Uh, and, and it's hard. I realize that pitchers, uh, especially pitchers who pitched in the steroid era, uh, are probably, you know, we, we have too high standards for them. But, um, you know, and I'll continue to look at them every year. I know that Nusin has got a lot of people in his corner, and uh, I've read a lot of arguments for both of them, and, and they make some great points. And um, I, I do go back and forth on them every year. But, um, you know, for me, they're, they're guys that, that just fall outside the line. Um, and, and Trevor Hoffman, same way. I thought for sure I was going to vote for Trevor Hoffman this time because he got so close. And, uh, and then I, I just, I kept going into the numbers and it's like, you know, he, he didn't, he didn't have the same kind of impact with the closers, uh, who were multi-inning closers who are in their hall of fame already, uh, had in their career in terms of their overall value. So I'll be happy if, if they make it in. Um, but, um, you know, for now they're, they make it in without my support. You've been listening to Andrew Baggerly. Andrew is the Giants beat reporter for The Athletic. You can give him a follow on Twitter at Extra Bags. Andrew, thank you for taking the time to join the podcast today. Yeah, of course. Enjoyed it. Thank you.